Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Alexius Arctos for his excellent editing and sound engineering and Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Alexius has very kindly offered to help me by editing and sound engineering the podcast because at the moment, unlike other podcasts, I don't have a team. There's just me. Alexios is a dynamo, so with a little luck, I should be able to really get some great content happening a lot faster in the near future. Today, we continue our discussion with Bruce Leninger about his son's memories and his quest to find out more about the men from the Natoma Bay. To provide a little bit more clarification on one point, we talk about Chi-Chi Jima in this episode, and you might be a little confused about why we're talking about Chi-Chi Jima when it's often reported that James Houston Jr.'s plane was shot down at Iwo Jima. So, to clarify, the Natoma Bay was in the Western Pacific Ocean to attack the shipping and supply lines that were being used to supply Iwo Jima. On the morning of the 3rd of March, 1945, squadrons from the Sergeant Bay and the Natoma Bay set off to support a bombing mission of a Japanese supply base on Chichijima that supplied Iwo Jima less than 200 miles away. So James Houston's overall mission was about Iwo Jima, but his task on the day of his death was to attack Chichijima. Also, we talk about two men named Jack in this episode, Jack Durham and Jack Larson. Jack Larson didn't see what happened to James Houston, but Jack Durham did. So I hope that makes our recount a little easier to follow in case anyone was getting confused. But let's join Bruce again as he fills us in on the next instalment of his son James's memories. We last sort of left off right at the point where we were talking about the G.I. Joes and the uh, the cockpit that he had in the cupboard. And around about that time, there was also an initial reach out from, you mentioned Sherry Balafonte. And for those of us who are younger, they might not know who Sherry Balafonte is, but she was actually quite a person in her own right, or she is actually a person in her own right who's quite famous, isn't she? Yes, yes, she uh, has a notable talent as, uh, in entertainment. You know, I haven't seen or heard anything about her in years, but yes. Sherry actually contacted you originally because they wanted to do a documentary, didn't they, about the story? Yeah, yeah, we were contacted through, I don't remember exactly how it evolved, but I think uh, the source of it first came from Carol Bowman who had published a book and then we were contacted and it wasn't Sherry that contacted us. It was, uh, I think her name was Shalini. She worked for some network or some producer. And then we kind of proceeded with the process of saying, well, okay, you know, at, at that point, we didn't really have the definitive proof that we were able to obtain months later, but there was enough that had happened. They were interested in doing it. There was going to be some series. I, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, 2020, I think she was involved. Well, with it was going to be 2020, but it was going to be some strange mysteries. And they were interested in making, a, I guess, a recording or recording something for a pilot episode. And then, you know, we went through the whole process and Sherry Belafonte, there was someone else that was supposed to come to our house and something happened in terms of a conflict with his schedule. And then we heard that Sherry Belafonte was coming, which kind of, okay, well, <laughs> we recognized the name, but okay, well, here we go. 
One of the actual sort of follow-ons from that, one of the things that sort of sat you back on your heels at the time because of the documentary was that you realised that the Natoma Bay vets would see it and that at the time you were still saying it was just about catching up about the veterans and interested in the, the men who'd served. Yeah, at that point, I had just received the letter from Leo He had promised it to me a year and a half earlier, or even longer, at least a year and a half earlier. He said, when we have the reunion, I'll let you know. And I got a letter from him. I still have have that letter. And at that point, I knew that I would be going to a reunion. I didn't really know anything about what I would encounter other than this was a way, because I was in like a dead zone from the point that I found the listing of those killed on aircraft carriers in World War II in early January of 2001 until June when Shalini and Sherry got in process with us. And we met Carol Bowman because she came down to be part of the recording activities Uh, It was a dead zone. I I didn't know where else to look or what else to try to find. And so when she came down, the one thing that did occur, and I still have a copy of this email with some notes on it, was Shalini had done some research and found somebody in, I don't know whether it was the Navy Records Department or something like that, who she gave me a number and I was able to talk to him. And it was at that point that he indicated that a guy named Jack Larson, he gave me a middle name, Aubertine or something like that, had been the assistant armaments officer on BC-81. And I didn't even know what BC-81 meant at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Had no idea what it meant. And he had been the uh, assistant armaments officer, which I didn't know what that meant. I mean, it was logic. He was the assistant to armament, but beyond that, the obvious, you know, meaning. And then when Sherry got there to our house, she came in in a flight suit and we discovered quickly that she had been a pilot. And probably one of the most startling things that we encountered during that visit, it was actually the most startling thing, is we had taken James to an air show because of his interest in aircraft, there was one sponsored here every year. And we, we went, we had also gone to it just because it was a cool thing to go see all of these aircraft, all different kinds and types, including military aircraft. And she's looking at this video that we took because we couldn't figure out what was James, what James was doing around this aircraft because he was just all over it. He was pulling, tag, tugging on this and pulling on that and looking in this and going to the propeller and trying to turn the propeller and stuff like that. It's just, he's doing a pre-flight check of the aircraft. So what is that? You know, I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. She said, well, you know, before you get into the aircraft, you're supposed to inspect everything to make sure... It, it's airworthy, you know, that, that you don't see anything that needs to be repaired or whatever it is. And she said, that's a, he's doing a pre-flight check. That blew our minds. It's amazing, isn't it? I never focused very much on getting any kind of explanation about it. And the reason why was because I was in the middle of a process of working 80 hours a week because oh. we were selling our company. We had been that's going right. through a due diligence process for several months with two or three uh, suitors who wanted to buy us and the deal had gone through and we were working on the transition and I was just buried, you know, as an executive, I was always committed to whatever I was doing. I'm always committed to anything I do. I was really trying to figure out how I was, I even had the time to do this, you know, take the time out and sort all this stuff out. 
but by that point, we were also, I would say, we didn't really know Carol Bowman that well by that point. Karen, uh, Andrea had, I guess, spent a little bit of time talking with her and corresponding with her. I really hadn't done any of that. And so we were really, our agreement to it had more to do with the fact that we were thankful to Carol for her support and the a little bit of guidance that she had given to Andrea. And it wasn't any long dialogue. It was a couple of things about how to help James work his way through what he was remembering. It wasn't therapy. It was, she never spoke to James. Uh, she was just trying to give Andrea and me some guidance on how to help him sort it out. Yeah, well, Carol's actually really good at that. She does a lot of that sort of healing work. Well, she's great at actually helping kids get through the trauma. And I've got to say, your case is the shining example of that because James was just in really so much torment in a way from it. Absolutely. The only reason I actually bring up about that is because in an interesting way, that actually was a good thing for the case because really what happened was this case sort of started unfolding when people were actually already aware of it. And the other good thing about it is that James was quite happy to talk to people about it. And so you had a lot of people who weren't just family connections who knew about what he was saying and who could verify that he had made points before you proved them. Yeah. And, and, you know, what we did not have in terms of whether it was a weak or strong case at that point that we did that filming, you know, I was hoping to, I was looking forward to the reunion because I thought, well, this was going to be an opportunity for me to try to get some information about what happened. Was it Jack, you know, and I went to the reunion fully expecting to find something about Jack Larson having died. And actually too, before you, I think before you went to the reunion, you actually did get a contact from someone from one of your really early postings. And that's when you contacted the Chichi Jima side. You actually had someone ring you, Jack Durham. No, that, that happened after the reunion. It was after the reunion, was it? Yeah. Yeah. What happened was, and I have a copy of the email that I, or my posting. When I came home from the reunion, I had not understood anything about Chichi Jima. And since that was what I was told at the reunion, because I didn't have any hard data at that point, it was just what the historian was able to tell me based upon the materials he had at hand. And shortly after the reunion, I did receive a little blue booklet that was the history of BC-81 at Situs, Chichijima. But when I came home from the reunion, I think it was like maybe three days, I said, I have to find out more about this. And I found a website, I think it was sponsored by a guy named John LaPlante or something like that who had served in the Navy and had been stationed at Chichijima. It had been a tracking station for satellite communication, and it still is. If you visit it, there's these big satellite dishes, but it's now Japanese. The technology was transferred to the Japanese or something. And I put a posting up about having seeking information about something that had occurred there on March 3rd, 1945. And that was in September of 2002. I think it was September 14th. And then that following May, Andrea, I came home from my consulting work and Andrea said, some guy named Jack Durham called you and wants to talk about James Houston. I I can't remember exactly, but who, you know, and then I went to the website, back to the website, because she said something to me about having, he had, he had seen something when he called the house. Like I said, this is where we've never been hard to find. We don't have a private, we didn't have a private number. I've never hidden. I've never been hard to find. Mm. Matter of fact, I'm startlingly easy to find. Now, once you find me, I hope you can put up with me, you know, uh, but, but anyway, so I went 
to the website and I found his posting on the website. There were probably 20, maybe 15 or 20 postings. I mean, it wasn't a popular website. I don't even know whether it's still up. And uh, so I thought, oh man, he said he was there on March 3rd. Andrea had the number. So I called him back and he went on to describe in the conversation that he had seen a plane shot down that day. Now, by that time, I had received those nine rolls of microfilm and I had the action report. And when he told me who he was and who he flew with, I was able to verify it. I was just actually looking because I kind of got a bit confused with this with the book because in the book, Jack Durham was one of the ones who actually did see the plane go down. It says he was, I don't know whether he was from the Sergeant Bay or not. He was a radio man. Yes, from Sergeant Bay, DC-83. That's right. And he was one of the eight crew on eight of the crew on a TBM Avenger. He checked his mission log to be sure of the day. He said the AA fire was incredible. He saw one of the fighters from the escort squadron from the Napotoma Bay take a direct hit to the nose. The plane started to disintegrate as it fell towards the bay. He realised that the plane, like themselves, was the tail end Charlie. And as they finished their mission and started heading out for open sea, he saw where the place that the fighter had hit where that landed in the water. The rings were still expanding near a huge rock at the harbour entrance. And actually, too, you mentioned before about that the people were kind of not doing their job greatly about recording the thing, but you did ask him at the time, well, why didn't you report it? And he said the simple answer was because minutes after the guy's plane was hit, my plane was hit and we never got back to the ship. We went into the water too, but his crew survived. My heart was beating like a rabbit's. I was just, I couldn't believe here it was, somebody could verify this because I always got stuck on and Andrew and I had a, some real royal arguments over it. I could only find something that described it saying apparently. Well, how did they say he got shot down? And it's only apparently, you know, and that really was, it's really stymied me. And I'm, she goes, you know, give it up give it up. I said, I'm not going to give it up. Why are they saying apparently? And then they're so certain about it. Well, I learned later why that was true. And it had to do with the intellectual honesty of the people that were writing the aircraft action reports. Again, I'm digressing, but the way that works is different aircraft from different ships on a mission. There was a commander of the mission, and that was the pilot of a TBM Avenger because it was a three-man crew. So there were two other people there that could record information or do something during the flight. And then at the end of mission, they would give a report about what happened. Well, because they flew on a mission with another group of aircraft from another aircraft carrier, which had come from the Toma Bay, there must have been some kind of conversation between the commander of the mission and the person recording what had occurred. And the person who was recording it, because he was receiving information that was secondhand, wasn't firsthand. He didn't see the plane get shot down. None of the pilots from BC-81 saw the plane got shot get shot down. And they, they didn't even know the plane had been shot down because both Jack Larson and Bob Greenwald had flown on that mission that day. And they were they were two pilots that I met and talked to. That's uh, right. You you met Jack Larson when you ended up going to the reunion because I've kind of that's my fault. I've kind of got it out of order now because of that. So yeah. we'll cut we'll cut back first before we go yeah. too much further into Jack Durham. We'll cut back first to you did go to that first reunion. Was it in two thousand two or two thousand and three? Yes. 2002. 2002. Yeah. And while you were there, that's where you actually found out about Jack Larson and what actually happened to him, wasn't it? Yes. What I did was I had developed this list of those men killed serving aboard aircraft carriers in World War II. 
in January of 2001, and the way it was printed, it identified the ship from which these people came from who were killed. And so I went there because I was still interested in Jack Larson, and there were people named Jack Larson or James Larson or whatever on that list, but none of them seemed to match. So I went to the reunion trying to get information about people who were on the list. And as I was talking to the ship historian who I was introduced to, because if he's the ship historian, then that's the first place that makes sense to talk to someone. I was going down the list. And of course, Jack Larson's name wasn't on the list. I said, you know, I said, can you tell me anything about a guy named Jack Larson dying? And I still remember John DeWitt, who's a charming man. He looks at me, he goes, Jack's dead? And I'm you know, there are a number of times where my brain just melted and was running out of my ears, you know, just like, <laughs> what? you know, I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, he says, he's on our roster. He said, yeah, he's on our roster. So he gets the Matoma Bay Association roster out. And here's this guy named Jack Larson living in Springdale, Arkansas. And holy shit, I'm looking for a dead guy. And here he's alive. And I called him that night. I had his phone number. I called him and said, Jack, you don't know who I am. I'm at your reunion here in San Diego. And I, do you mind if I get have a chance to chat with you after the reunion's over? He said, well, yeah, you know, he was being very, he said, well, what do you want to know? I said, well, I'm not quite sure what I need to know. I'm just surprised to find you. You know, I mean, he'd have hung up. Oh yeah, my, my, my son was talking about you. I came home from the reunion. I did that posting that we're talking about, you know, finding out about who Jack Durham is meeting him. And then all of a sudden here, I'm on my way to Springdale, Arkansas to see good old Jack. Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, that's what I mean about it. it's been an interesting journey because once you started getting the dominoes in place, they just started falling and the information started coming at you. You know, and, and I just want to try to give a little a anecdote on this. Okay. You know, we see things and we hear things that are hard to believe. It's, I think it's called cognitive dissonance where you see it or hear it. it does, you can't process it. It doesn't process well. You know, it would be like if I came along and told you, well, you know, the sun used to come up in the, in the west and used to set in the east. Have you been drinking, you know? <laughs> so the story was, the journey and the story was full of that. And there were gaps in time where when you read the book, it seems like it's nice and linear. Well, it wasn't linear. It, it, there's a chronology to it, but it wasn't a smooth journey. No, well, that's it, isn't it? It was kind of like information sort of slowly became available or revealed to you as you kind of went yeah. along, which is, yeah. again, I think is one of the reasons why this case is so strong, because you, you didn't have this information. And then as you're trying to find it, it's sort of being documented as you went along. You know, when I came home from the reunion to go back to a little bit of that for a second, you know, I walked away and we were convinced that the person that was killed was James M. Houston Jr. We had that name and it made sense because of the drawings, James was signing James III. But I, I didn't really have anything else other than what I was able to pick up verbally at the reunion. And when I came home from, you know, when I went up to see Jack Larson, he said, well, you know, I asked him about Jan March 3rd, 1945. He says, well, I flew on a mission that day. Well, that surprised me. I didn't know that. At that point, I didn't have any idea who was on that mission or it was even a mission, you know, it was just the plane got shot down apparently crashed in the harbor of Shichijima. And so I went up to see him and he said, well, I flew on the mission that day. I said, you did what? You know, and I'm going, because I was trying to figure out by this time, it was like, what does he know? Does, does he feel what I know? 
you know, does, does he have some sense of or feeling of all this, you know, because I was just so uncertain still at that point about how all this fit together. And that people look back and say, well, you wrote a book about it. Yeah, but it was still in process. The experiences were still in process. You know, I'm experiencing these strange things that are beyond coincidence, in my opinion. Mm. And he said, well, I flew on a mission that day. So, well, tell me about what happened. He said, well, you know, we, we made a couple runs. He said, I flew back. And it wasn't until I got back to the aircraft carrier and landed that we learned that uh, Houston never came back. So we, we didn't know what happened to him, but we knew he didn't show up, you know, because he wasn't there. And so there was, I guess, some conjecture about what happened, but no one in the squadron saw it because Houston was the tail end Charlie coming in behind the other seven aircraft, two of which were flown by Greenwald and Larson. And I don't know what the details are about how all of that stuff gets recorded. I was just told that there was a mission commander. And then, you know, that was how the person that wrote the aircraft action report from the Toma Bay and from BC-81. There was someone who was appointed from the squadron to record that information and file those reports. So when you actually look at what he told you, though, you, in a way you can see why it didn't get recorded. And that is because, I mean, it obviously is clear from when you read the book and from the insights you give by the other flight crews is that because Houston was the tail end Charlie, he was kind of behind everybody else. He was the last plane. And so most people weren't actually able to even see him. And I think it was, I think it comes out later somewhere that they were actually kind of heading back. And then that's why no one even saw it because they were heading back to the ship. Was that right? I can't remember. Well, there's another little thing about this. And Jack Larson relayed that information to me. He said, they were firing so much flack to us. He said, I just wanted to get the hell out of there live. He said, there was so much flack in the air that it was almost like I thought I could have walked to the ground on it. Yes. Now, here's the concept. For anybody that's out there listening, if you've ever been shot at, what are you thinking about? Getting back. (laughs) Staying alive. Get the hell out of there. (laughs) Yep. Not being a target of opportunity for anything. I've never been shot at, but I can't imagine being shot at. And having the clearness of voice. Well, I remember all these things. You know, what do you want to ask me? And in terms of Jack Durham, Jack Durham was badly injured when his plane crashed. He spent several weeks in the hospital. He had a serious, some kind of serious injury to his shoulder. And so, you know, he, he was more concerned about surviving the plane crash. I think other crewmen actually helped him get out of the plane. So, you know, he's not thinking about, you know, this or that. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I did speak with him, he said, well, we're going to be having a reunion. I said, well, I said, you know, if I can make arrangements to go to it, can I come to you? So, yeah, sure. He said, we'd be happy to, you know, I'd be happy to have you. You Matter of fact, Jack Durham and Ralph Plarbor and Ralph's wife are the very first people I opened up to about why I was doing this. So that was at the first reunion, was it? Or was it that in, I think that was later, wasn't it? I went to the Natoma Bay reunion in September of 2002, and then I went to the Sergeant Bay reunion and BC-83 reunion in 2003. Uh And by that time, you know, this had, you know, there was visibility about this. Uh, Matter of fact, I think by then we knew that we were going to be filmed for ABC primetime. Yes. For that took place shortly thereafter. And I figured, well, I had all this information. I knew this. And now here's guys telling me 
because when I spoke with Jack Durham that day, I was able to go to the aircraft action report. By then, I'd copied all those nine rolls of microfilm that I'd received the preceding December. So I was able to go to it. That's exactly right. BC-83, USS Sergeant Bay, eight TBM Avengers. And I'm going, holy shit, Batman, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, at last I'm starting yeah. to get the proof. Yeah. And I'm talking to an eyewitness. I'm not just talking to somebody that wrote a report. Here's, here's somebody that saw it happen. Yeah, you know? it's amazing. It still gives me goosebumps. And then uh, when I got to that reunion, I met three other men in, in addition to John or Jack who had seen the same thing. Yes, because it sort of slowly came out, didn't it, that there were quite a few other people who did see it. But we'll kind of get to them as we sort of um, come on, because before the reunion, the second reunion you went to, Andrea had been, because you were so busy, as you mentioned, you were in the middle of all this work. And Andrea had taken on the extra side of it of trying to contact the families. And through that, she actually ended up finding James Houston's sister, didn't she? That's correct. Was that before or after the reunion? I couldn't quite work it out. When I went to the reunion, the Natoma Bay reunion in 2002, the one thing that disappointed me that I did, and I didn't understand it. I figured I was going to go there and get a bunch of answers. Well, I, well, we did get the answer about James Houston being killed during that mission or that period of time. And he was the only pilot lost from that squadron. I knew that, but I was just really surprised that I couldn't talk to anybody. There was no one at the reunion that could tell me exactly what happened. I mean, Leo Pyatt was there, but Leo could just tell me that he knew Jack Larson. He, he didn't have anything to do with the mission at Chichijima because his aircraft didn't fly on that mission that day. And so I was disappointed that no one else could tell me anything. You know, it was, it was like, well, crap, well, what did I come all the way out here for if nobody knows anything? You know, I was really kind of disappointed. And then uh, I said, well, you know, the only other thing we can do is, gee, you know, maybe, maybe, the, maybe there's somebody else in the families that would know. And I didn't have the time. You know, we had sold our com- my company. I was busy trying to build my consulting practice. And so Andrea and I talked about it. We had done some uh, genealogy work in, to her family and my family. I said, well, maybe you can help me find some of this stuff. So, so that's where she undertook the process of finding uh, James Houston's sister, Ann Barron. That wasn't the first family we found, or, or Ann, yeah, Ann Barron Houston. We actually found someone before that from, from another family that we had begun to talk to. And so, yeah, that was in the late winter or early spring of 2003. Right. And Anne actually was really, really helpful, wasn't she? Because she actually cleared up one of the, well, she put a, she gave an, an extra tantalizing clue to one of the things that had been bothering you. And that was the Corsairs. It was more like getting hit in the head with a two by four. I can't remember exactly how it transpired because I, again, I was out working and uh, I had, I'd written Anne a letter with the information in it because no one in the family knew exactly what happened to him at that point. Matter of fact, her father had gone to a couple of reunions to try to learn more about her, her brother or his son. Uh, I have a picture of him sitting on a couch with a couple of other, with at least one other person I met at the 2002 reunion. And this was a reunion that took place back in the late 60s. So anyway, you know, we didn't know anything. And, and here we are getting this information. And then she sent us a family photo album, which I scanned the pictures of virtually every one of them. And there was a picture of James Houston standing in front of a Corsair. Wow. And I'm going, holy, but she, she didn't know any more about it. 
and some of the ways that this information gets recorded, and I have some of these, including I have the uh, flight logs of Jack Larson and Bob Greenwald. I have several others, but I have theirs. Anytime somebody that is either a pilot or a member of the air crew does something in the airplane, it gets recorded. What the date is, how long they flew, and some incidental information about what took place on the mission. And so that's a flight log book that each pilot keeps. They track their hours flown. So that's how Jack Larson or, or Jack Durham was able to verify that he was on the mission that day because he went to his flight log book. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and there's a rich, you know, as a primary resource, which is what I focused on, I said, I need primary resources. I don't need any editorial comment. And that was this word apparently was an editorial comment. Those flight logbooks are very detailed in some cases, and it's a primary resource. It's actually what this person did. So they're signing off on it, and there's somebody else signing off on it. It's a part of their official record. Well, that flight logbook never made it home to the Houston family after he was killed. It might have been retained for, matter of fact, even the microfilm we received. Up until the late 60s or early 70s, all that information was still classified. There's all kinds of stamps and markings on that in on the microfilm copies that shows this is classified information. So it wasn't and wasn't until sometime at, you know, long after World War II was over that this stuff became available. Which is actually in one of the senses one of the beautiful things of this story because in your search for James, you ended up also being able to provide these families with a lot of information about what happened to their boys, didn't you? That's exactly correct. And some of it was rather heartbreaking. I still remember getting a hold of a family or of a pilot named Richard Quack. And Richard was a member of VC9 and he had been a Wildcat pilot too. And he, on an early morning takeoff, because some of these missions would start before daylight, he took off from the aircraft carrier and was forming up with other men in the mission and collided with an aircraft from a guy named Robert Washburg. And they were both killed. Well, when Richard's brother found out that his brother had not just died himself, but killed someone else, he broke down on the phone. But I sent the record because the, even with Ann Barron, you know, I still have copies of, of those letters. Here's what happened to your loved one. I'm sending you whatever I have. So I would send them copies of the action report. I think maybe even a copy of a page from the history of the squadron. There was information I'd send to them. So I said, well, here, this will help close the loop. I still have those letters I wrote to those families. Yes. And that was one of the things that came up that in the book that you'd uh, discussed. And that was that, as you mentioned, Anne and her, her father, James's father, weren't able to get any information about him. And you were actually able to give them quite a bit about where James died and what the bay was like and things. Well, like I said, you know, Anne conveyed to me, and it wasn't until later I got some photos of this. I can't remember who I got them from, that uh, her father had gone to at least one or two reunions trying to get more information about his son. And this was back in the early 60s, not long after this association had, I don't even know when the Natoma Bay Association was formed, but I know that they were having reunions and there's a, and he went to them and he was never able to find anything. And his father, James McCready Houston Sr., was a highly published author. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he, he wrote several books. He had a position in Philadelphia. I think he was something like the publications director for, I think, the Franklin Institute or something like that. 
he was he wrote oh man he wrote at least five or six books gee i never knew that that's interesting yeah, yeah. james mccready Houston senior there's a couple of points i want to actually bring up but the first is that Anne herself at the time that james died she also had a bit of a kind of a paranormal experience with relation to james didn't she Yes, what happened was, and I think she wrote this in that same letter. She, by, by that time, she was living in California down, I think, somewhere around Los Angeles. And they knew that he was going to be able to come home from the Pacific on a leave. And so she was readying her home for that visit in early March or March. I think the squadron disbanded somewhere around March 11th or 12th. So he was due home and she was cleaning up the, getting the house ready. And she felt his presence in the room and not just him, but in that same letter, she relates the same thing about happening to another family that had a guy named Jim Eastman had been very, very good childhood friends with Jim Houston. And they experienced the same thing. So they could feel his spirit and that he came to them to say goodbye. Isn't that that's not the only person that I've heard that from. Really? Uh, there was a pilot. The first pilot killed in BC-81 was a guy named Adrian Hunter, and he was from Oklahoma City. Well, I drove up to Oklahoma City to meet with his sister, who was still alive. And a matter of fact, that she gave me a yearbook from Corpus Christi that had his picture, her brother's picture in it, because that's where he was trained to be a naval aviator. They gave me his yearbook. She was relating to me the same kind of story that her mother had a dream and her son was in the, in the dream waving to her from an airplane saying, mom, I'm in heaven. I'm okay. Oh, wow. And, that, and then they went on to relate some other story about a friend of theirs that had a similar experience when their mother died or when the sister died. And that's not the only, there's one or two other anecdotes like that. And we may get to this, but when I sat down and shared with Ralph Clarbor and his wife, Mary, I think it was Mary and Jack Durham at that reunion, and I told them what happened, I figured they were going to throw me out the window by the time I got done. You're an idiot. You're crazy. You're, you're loonier than anybody. I still remember when I got done saying it, Jack or Ralph Clarbor looks at me and says, well, let me tell you something. And that was right about that time I thought I was going to get thrown out the restaurant window. And he said, when our son died, let my wife tell you. Their son was killed in Vietnam, and her son came to her in the dream saying, Mom, I'm in heaven. I'm okay. It's remarkable how many times you hear stories like that, isn't it? Two days before they showed up with the telegram. That's amazing, isn't it? And those telegrams are stark. They're, yeah, brutal. They're just, there's no, nothing that conveys any emotion or compassion in them. Yes, I can imagine that. I think I've seen them in documentaries and in movies, and it's the old, we regret to inform you, your son was killed. And we can't tell you anything else. I have copies of at least three or four of those. Yeah, it's brutal. It's a terrible way to find out that you've just lost someone who's so... You know, you want closure. That was another thing that I discovered about this, and I even feel some of it myself, and that the pain never goes away. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? I think when people leave, people say, oh, well, you know, you'll get over it in time, but you never really do. It stays the same. You just learn to live with it more, I think. You know, and I witnessed, like I said, Richard Quack's brother just broke down on the phone. There was another woman who was the widow of one of the first men killed from BC 63. 
Which actually brings me to another point, the other second point. I said there were two points. The second point, when you sort of were starting to, you said that you'd come across a few of the other cases of people as well. You'd sort of heard the stories of a few of the men. And as you went along, you started to realise that there were men who died, but weren't on the death lists, weren't there? And that affected you. Yeah, yeah. What Wanda? Well, it's just this is just one of the. Some of it had to do with the fact that it's just the way information gets recorded. Yeah, I had 18 names that I got from the list of men killed in World War in World War II on aircraft carriers. And when I got to the reunion, you know, I had that list and I was sharing it with I think it was with John DeWitt, maybe even Al Alcorn sitting there with them. And I said, Well, there were more men. I said, Well, what do you mean there were more men? Well, one of them was a guy named. He was the pilot, a, a guy named Ruben Gorenson. He was not on the list, and he had been the pilot of the very first aircraft that was lost serving aboard Natoma Bay. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, there's a destroyer housed in and berthed in Baton Rouge called the Kid. It's a World War II aircraft destroyer, and that ship was dispatched to look for that air crew because I have it in the records. And I actually gave that information to the ship historian for the USS Kid when I went to a visit there with a bunch of Boy Scouts. And so being able to verify and find all that information and share it with the families was, I'm going to say, something that had to do with healing. really did because it gave them closure. Yeah. There's something that you do later in the book that we'll get to and that's when you found out about these pilots some of them i think one was killed in just a an accident he took a plane out for a a flight and just that was billy peeler yeah that's right to go back and billy peeler what happened was after the battle of leyte gulf the ship went on a rest a rest period it was dispatched and relieved the duty and then they were the squadron was still with the ship at that point, and they were dispatched to, I think, a place called Majuro. And he went out on a joyride with a guy named Lloyd Holton, who was a member of the squadron, in an SBD, Dauntless, which was a dated dive bomber. And uh, the plane lost its engine and crashed into the ocean. There were witnesses that saw it happen. And so they knew what happened to him. But because Billy was not attached to the ship at that point on active duty on the ship it was never made part of the record of the ship's history so it was never included and that was the same thing with lloyd holton lloyd was the name of the third man he was from i think columbus ohio and he looked like a movie star i have photos of these people (laughs) from the families he just looked flat like a movie star one of the most handsome men i've ever seen But again, like with Billy Peeler, Billy Peeler's brother Wallace lived in Alexandria, Louisiana. So I actually went up to see Wallace several times. That's where I got a picture of of Billy Peeler in a color photo. And his hair is the same color as the doll that James named Billy. The G.I. Joe, that's right. His brother was in the Navy and his brother was aboard a ship that supported the Battle of Iwo Jima. He, I still remember talking to Wallace. He said, I sat and cried on the deck of my ship watching what was happening to the men on the beaches of Iwo Jima. And he said, I didn't even know at that point that my brother was dead. He only found that out later. Because this was not the kind of stuff that went back and forth like it does today. I mean, one of the most beautiful things I see about the internet and everything today is we don't have to wait an instant to find out about the barbarism taking place in the Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. We're aghast at that. And we should be. And evil spelled backwards is live. Evil has forgotten how to live. 
I agree with you. I mean, that's the thing. I think we're lucky now that people can have the answers to things because as you say, it's the not knowing that is the hard part. And the sad part about the three men you were just talking about is that because they didn't die as a result of war, they almost kind of were just like, oh, well, we'll put you to the side and we won't talk about you again. You know, it's, it's just the way stuff, life happens, you know, detail, you know, it's it was just one of these things where, yeah, you discover uh, stuff that startles you, you know. You know, how how can someone not not know that? Well, I guess we kind of forget what life used to be like before the internet. I think it's weird to think of it now when you look at it. Like the the internet's changed everything, really, when you look at it. Well, sure. I mean, that's it. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, there wasn't TV, you know, there was radio, you know, the only true mass media that could circulate beyond a certain distance other than newspapers was the radio. And the wonderful thing is things like your story with James. Like, I mean, when I was growing up, there was no internet and and you would not have heard. I couldn't sit here and talk to you like this because it would have cost me both my kidneys and a lung. That's one of the things about this whole story that I just believe is beyond coincidence. If this would have happened five years sooner, there would have been no way to find any of this stuff out because the internet didn't exist. And the internet, even in its feeble state at that point, and it was just coming up out of the woodwork, it was it was there, but it was it was not a refined tool at all. It was a very crude tool. You know, I mean, it took me two days to print the took me over two days to just print the pages of the men killed in World War Two in 2001. Connection with the internet, you know. Yeah. about ready to throw the computer out the window today you'd print it out you'd save it as a pdf or something and you print it out in 30 seconds yeah that's it it's it's a completely different world too and when you yeah. think about it you're not talking a massive amount of time you're probably talking about maybe what 25 years i mean which is not that long really well yeah i mean it really did it really wasn't you know, there was email, there were some things that were going on, but it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near as refined as it is today, or even by 2010, 2012. You know, then the other thing about this in terms of windows of time is if I'd have done this, try to do this 10 years later, the men that I talked to and met were dead. Yes, that's a point. I hadn't thought of that. There was this window and that's where I just don't believe that this is a coincidence that there was and you might say, oh, boy, you're crazy. But really, James was born in 1998. He started with these memories in 2000. And really, by uh, by 2010, some of the men that I had interviewed, several of them were already dead. It's amazing you actually had any of them alive, really, to yeah. be honest. You know, even the event like it was so amazing in the 2000, I have one of my favorite photos is we went to the 2004 reunion. There was a reunion within the reunion. And I have a photo with a guy named Dean Tate, Jack Larson and Bob Greenwald. They were all members of the same squadron and they had not seen each other since March 11th, 1945. They, wow. they came to the reunion and essentially they came to the reunion because I had developed a contact with them. And it was one of the most amazingly refreshing, in some ways, very humorous things, because there were one instance where I have a, and I probably still have the video of this, where I was interviewing them, they were talking about some of their memories, and they were all sitting on a couch, talking about a guy who had been a member of the squadron who had been ditched during the Battle of Iwo Jima, was lost for three days. Uh, They found him, he was kind of in a state of, let's say, nervous breakdown. You could see this, uh, just say, piss and vinegar attitude of a pilot. And Mm. he was 24 years old again. 
And they were saying, yeah, he was just looking for a way to get out of this. And they were so unforgiving. Yeah, what they, he was trying to row back to Hawaii. I was just holding the camera, laughing my butt off. But there were things like that that occurred and permitted me the privilege of meeting them. I, I really felt like I was sitting around the table like the knights of the round table. These were, these were men that put their lives on the line. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? When you have these, you almost get like these unexpected moments in life where things will happen and you go, that was just such a real gift. And I, and I kind of never expected it to ever happen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And once again, we will leave this compelling and complex case to return for the final installment shortly. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you'd become a Patreon supporter. I don't do extra content, but thanks to having Alexius on board, I'm hoping to provide much more content in the future and your kind support helps me keep doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. <laughs>